thanks everybody for coming on this very chipper cold day to uh, the, inter the reason there's a slight delay as I was just on Twitter and I just took a photo of all your, the back of your head. <laughs> and then the hashtag is catalogue of bias, is that right? With the American spelling as opposed to the English spelling which has a U and the E. So it's catalogue of bias without all one word attached. So if you want to cheat, tweet, it'd be useful if you could use the catalogue of bias. So thanks for coming. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about why we started. Uh, why did we start? And then David's going to talk about what did we do. And then Ian's going to come and talk a little bit about some of the integration of some of the other products like the James Lynn Library and the importance of bias. Um, about a few years ago, um, I wrote this piece about reflections on Dave Sackett's time at Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine um, when he died, unfortunately. About four weeks before he died, he sent me an email, and he sent it to about four people, and he said, Dear Carl, um, have I got it wrong? Somebody's introduced me to propensity scores, <laughs> and I'm wondering whether randomization, I should have been thinking more about propensity scores in the last 20, 30 years. And all I could think is, wow, this guy's seriously unwell, <laughs> and he's still passionate about bias and treatments and effect sizes, and he was really interested in that aspect. And, and in writing that, um, there are about four or five papers, or not papers, maybe series of articles that David Sackett was the first director of the centre I first met in 94. Some people in this room, me and you, met many years before that and worked with him. And uh, There are about four or five books or series of papers that I think everybody should read if you're interested in evidence-based medicine. One of them is probably the books on basic clinical epidemiology, which actually has a series one, two, and three, I think is right. And actually the first series is fantastic. The first book is, is outstanding. Uh, the second is a, a sort of series of articles called Clinician Rounds, of which is about 30 papers in that series, and there's some great papers in that. Obviously the editorial, what is EBM and what it isn't. And then there's a paper on, uh, online which you can look up about being a mentor. He was really interested in mentoring and what that meant, and he, and he, and he thought he talked about who to gravitate to and who to avoid. And they seem to be more about who to avoid than who to gravitate to in, in that series. But there's also a paper in there, which is this paper. Bias in Analytic Research by David Sackett in 1979. Printed in Great Britain in the Journal of Chronic Disease. And it's a really interesting paper. And in reflections and thinking about it, I've always been aware of this paper. But in reflections, when I read it again, there's a really interesting bit at the end of the paper which is, comes through and he lists all these priorities in biases in 1979. And interestingly, at the time then, case control series were the fad for journals. So case control series were on the rise. And cohort studies were dropping and there were very few randomised control trials. And if you read this paper, there were sort of four priorities. And, you know, you know, when you look back and you think, oh, I wish I'd done this a few years earlier. 
I think the, the advent of the internet allows us to put the continued development of an annotated catalogue of bias. Each citation should include a useful definition, a referenced example, illustrating the magnitude and direction of its effects, and a description of the appropriate preventive measures. If any, I volunteer for this task, would welcome collaboration and would appreciate receiving nominations and examples of additional biases. So there's a really interesting idea that actually, this is a fantastic idea, it's about 40 years too early, isn't it? Technology allows us to look back and think, wow, this is a fantastic idea. We could now do that with the internet. So that's the mission of the catalogue of bias. Interestingly, um, biases, and when you think about it, and when I was looking at this, is, is there are loads of examples of really interesting bias, but I do like this on the James Lind li Library, is what are biases? Question mark. And I think that's a really important issue for us always to think about. What do we mean by bias? And out there in the world, when you go out and talk about biases, they're all around, they all affect us, but very few people really understand what are we on about and what does it mean. And there's a good, and uh, this is Peter Elwood here, who was the first trialist in aspirin, right, correct, who did the first trial in aspirin, which, but biases in tests and treatment are those influences and factors that can lead to conclusions about treatment effects that are systematically different from the truth. I think that's a really nice, succinct definition of why we're interested in biases. Interestingly as well, um, when you go and start to then think about biases, and this is just two examples, all of the people that are involved in evidence-based medicine or in Cochrane in some way that everybody recognises, like Peter Gotcher, like Kenneth Schultz, like Doug Altman, like Ian Chalmers, at some point have gone through a mission in bias where they've gone, this is interesting, I'm going to write something about it. This is a great paper by Peter about reference bias. One we've been teaching for over 20 years is the empirical evidence of bias that we've been teaching all the time. So we've been teaching about this and then the empirical, the magnitude and the direction of the bias. But interestingly, it's not as straightforward as there's a magnitude and direction. Bias is not a straightforward something I could teach you today and we walk away and we have all the knowledge. And that there are many papers like this by Leslie Wood who led this which I like about all the people who've, who've helped to that, it seems that in situations when bias is like, the size of such bias is unpredictable. Sometimes it's different for subjective outcomes than, than objective outcomes. So although we might say it's one way, sometimes we're not sure. And then I just like, I put this picture up because I think this has been the one bit where, at this point, and this is in 2000 and about 9, 10, this is the Tamiflu collaborators at New College. And there's Tom Jefferson, who was one of the lead. But David Tove is there, and Chris Delmar, myself, and other people like Peter Doshi and Mark Jones. So it's a real international collaboration. But at the time, there's been a, there was a sort of approach that there was a grade approach that bias is quite straightforward. It's high, moderate, or low. And in that, there are three or four biases you look at. And if they're present, you're low risk, and if they're absent, you're, sorry, the other way, if they're present, you've got high risk, and if they're absent, you're low risk. And suddenly within the, co the, the work of the, of the review we did in time, I'm like, hold on, there are a, a myriad of other biases that are really important in what we're doing. Not least reporting bias is a huge impact. And that 
also was very influential in that. I'm thinking, we can't, have we re just made this reductionist approach? Is that appropriate? And then there are other biases that have keep pervading everything that I've been involved in or done. Publication bias is what this is all about. Huge project where 100,000 people supported it. Ian sent me a, an email the other day from about that actually bias is good because it keeps us in business. <laughs> Without bias, we'd have no job. And I thought, yeah, bias is what this whole project is about. And so that led us to the idea of the catalogue of bias. Building, and it's a sort of project that builds from what's gone before, from what David Sackett was talking about, to what many other people have been talking about, to just say, let's build something that can allow us to put together a catalogue that will be useful for me, for you, for individuals out there, for researchers. We get asked a lot, I get asked a lot, and people in this room by Science Media Centre, could you comment on this research? Well, actually, it contains this bias. I'm sick of writing it. Why not just point to some place? So that's what it's about. And to, we think as researchers, our mission is to reduce bias. But there's also another mission out there. We means the general public. This doesn't mean we in this room. I've, we is everybody. Must be aware of the different type of biases, their potential impact in how this affects interpretation and use of evidence in healthcare decision making. Very important concept. And I'm going to hand over to David in a minute. But um, we think this is also so important. And one area where I think it's hugely important is in this group, is in the under 18s, in a new generation of people who understand bias and its impact on decision making and how we use bias to make decisions, influence decision making. And we think it's to equip the next generation with the critical thinking skills to make informed healthcare choices. That's also another project called Informed Healthcare Choices. That's Ian's involved and Andy Oxman. And there are opportunities to teach that. So that's why we started. And um, this is a project where we decided to launch the website, and David's going to show you what did we do. So yes, um, I was very passionate when we decided to take this project forward right from the word go, um, because as a, as a teacher of EBM, and there's a lot of people on a course that I'm running this week, uh, one of the modules for our evidence-based healthcare's master's program this week, I'm always looking, I was always thinking, so what? Why do we care about the biases? Why are we even looking at these biases? What does it matter? And when I first started off, I was, I was struggling to find places other than usually going to, to, to Ian's paper, the Schultz paper, and saying this is one of the clear-cut examples of where bias is important and how it impacts on the results. But I often struggled to, or it took a long time to dig out some other ones. And what would have been really, really useful for me is what we're about to sort of show you now. If I had this four or five years ago, I could really just point to my students and go, look, this is why these biases are important and this is what, why they matter and this is the impact that they're having. So, uh, I, like I said, I was very, very keen to get on board and uh, really happy that I was, I was asked to come on board and, and be part of the project. And I managed to convince uh, 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 the Crack A team at the uh, CBM Centre to, 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 that this was important and they should get involved too. So, all of these guys here and girls, we all went off for two days. I think this was one of the first away day projects for two nights I've had with the CBM, and it was great fun, and we went here. Anyone recognise this part of the world? 
Hmm? Gale? Where? Gale? No, it's it's in it's in the, it's not a foreign. We there's no the budget wouldn't stretch to a foreign holiday. So <laughs> it's yes, it's Bristol. <laughs> With the coloured houses there. So the Delft, we, of <laughs> the Delft of England. Yes, absolutely. Um, and here we all are, day one. Uh, I don't know if we took another picture after day three, but uh, it probably wasn't quite as, uh, as, as bright and breezy as this. And um, we set off with, prior to leaving, we were obviously familiar with David Sackett's paper, which we are, within that paper he actually identifies 56 biases that he lists, uh, relevant to cohort studies, relevant to case control studies, and a few that are relevant to experimental studies, but it's quite hard to tease that out from the paper itself. So we had, our, we had 56 in mind. Then you go off and you do a bit of research and you realize that John Yiannidis is also interested in this area and he comes up with 235 biases and you start to just, your head starts to sink a little bit. Um, but luckily, I think for us, he managed to whittle down those 235 into four concrete sort of areas. So there was a lot of overlap between those 235 and actually 40 was, was what he ended up presenting. So we took those on board as well. And then we obviously were familiar with our, through our own work um, about the Cochrane as well, which some of these biases weren't captured either in the Unidas paper or in the, in the Sackett paper, obviously, because Cochrane wasn't around then. So some important biases, particularly in relation to clinical trials. So armed with that, we took our, we took our project folder and our project tracker. And we ended up with roughly around about 100 biases. We turned up at Bristol with about 100 biases to, to start off with, which... Uh, we then set about in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the hotel bunker room, and here we are in action. We split into three teams, uh, folk here, and then and Carl, and this is Douglas Badnock, and Ruth Davis is in the room as well, the CBM manager. We're in the, we're in the control room, uh, I think doing something useful, but it felt like we were doing all the hard work, but I'm sure Ruth was definitely, <laughs> but Ruth was definitely keeping us to task and keeping us to time. Um, and so we split into three, some, for some reason, I always end up, this colour seems to, to follow me around, so I was in the pink group too. And we had 30 biases per group, and we, we, we came up with a web page template that basically had to cover these four areas that we were looking at. So what's the definition of the biases, the bias that we're looking at, and where are we going to go look for it, and what we're going to write. We then had to find some examples of where these biases that we were, we, were, we, were, we were tasked with were present in the literature. So some real concrete examples of, yes, here's a, here's a, here's a, bad exa a good example or a bad example, whichever you're looking of it, of this particular bias in action. Uh, key was this as well. So like David said, can you, can you, can you show evidence that it matters? Um, and sometimes when it does matter and sometimes when it doesn't actually matter. And put that in one place. And then also, as David also uh, iterated the catalogue, must tell us how we should avoid this going forward. So that was what we were armed and tasked with, with completing. Um, and we basically had a, had a search strategy that, that, that consisted of four areas. Looking at the papers within our own catalogue folder that I've already mentioned, from the, the, the 56, the 235, and the 40 papers, what's in there that's already answering some of these questions. But also, we didn't want to mi miss any current up-to-date systematic reviews was key. So we also looked in PubMed queries for any systematic reviews or anything that would, would cover this area that would be key to, to look at. Clearly, we obviously did a little bit of Googling work just to see what came out top for these different types of biases. And then we were keen also to link with the, the, the James Lynn Library and, um, to see what, their, what they had on, on each of these different biases and, and any links that we could then bring into our, to our web pages. And this is, if you like, the rough 
template that we started to complete. So we just started to complete all these for different biases. I'll give you an example of allocation bias here. This is the, the, the if you like, the, the web template that we were going to use. So a definition, a background, something along the biases that this, this bias currently relates to, which, we'll, which when you go onto the catalogue online, you'll be able to link off to the similar biases that each bias is related to and, and, and snowball from there. Uh, a nice little definition of the background of the bias. Again, a concrete example where we could find one. Information on the impact with links to show you this is what's an, an often... Here we've got our friend Schultz and Grimes, which is, the, which is the original paper we just showed you earlier. And then some nice preventative steps about how you can deal and handle this bias in your research or in, in, in how people doing research should handle this type of bias. Okay, um, And then a bit of a, 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 some finger pointing to some other linked resources that we're going to help you with and, and, and provide for you, as well as the sources that we've used to, to, to provide for this, um, this page. So that said, I'd now like to just show you the actual catalogue, which is ready to, ready to roll out, we hope. So here we have it. Okay, so this is the homepage for the catalogue, and I think it looks really, really cool, and I think we've done a really great job, and Douglas, from, Douglas Badenock from Innovations done, a lot of the work, done all the work behind the back end of it. Taking those sort of A4 sheets he just saw and turning it into something like this, which is which is pretty impressive and, and really cool. Um, so the front page will just have an example of a of a bias, probably the most recent one that's gone in, but also we'll have a, some some links to some of the blogs that we've done, the latest blogs. And in, in in fact, I think today I sent Carl this, and he got it up today, just to sort of say my take, pretty much what I've just said to you at the start of my talk, how for me when I first started an EBM this type of thing would have been really, really useful. And what we're hoping is that for other teachers, of EB, particularly teachers of EBM who want to use examples and go somewhere, this will be the place to go for, for uh, stuff on biases. Um, and then you'll see, if you just click on the top rows, we then get into our biases. Currently there's 25 biases, uh, and these will be updated regularly. Um, we've, like I said, we've got at least another 40 or 50 in the background and they're constantly being checked by the team to make sure that they're correct for content and correct, ready to go out on, 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 the, on the pages. Uh, and we're just off, off offering obviously different areas on the website where you can start to select your, uh, the biases that you're interested in, drop-down menus, and this will become populated as we, as we go through it. Um, you'll see some sort of, if you're familiar with some of the areas of bias and different types of terminology, but you'll also see some sort of strange ones like this. Hot stuff bias, and trust me, when I click on it, it doesn't go where you might want it to go. It goes <laughs> to a nice definition of, of what hot stuff bias is. And this actually came from David Sackett's paper. So there are a lot, there are a lot of quite obscure and obsolete uh, terminology that David used in that paper for certain types of biases. So you would have thought, what's hot, hot stuff bias? What's that got to do with anything? But when you read it, I think this makes clear and perfect sense, if not now, more than ever, when you start to read what he's talking about around hot stuff bias. So there were some biases that we, we realized that if you went searching, yeah, be careful with your Google search for this, um, but you go off and you start and just nothing's gonna come through, certainly not on PubMed or any sort of, lit, any sort of regular database. But they, that type of bias is very, very prominent now, and it's a very, um, uh, one that needs to be at the forefront, I think. So we included things like this because we thought actually they were making sense then and they, they certainly make sense now, even if the terminology isn't quite 
what we would call that now. I'm not sure what that kind of, what the name for that bias would be now if it's not hot stuff bias. But we can, uh, we can, we can debate that as well, I think. So there are some, some, some on there from the catalogue that certainly you wouldn't see now, but we've put them in anyway because we think some of them are actually quite relevant. Um, in terms of impact, again, some statements here. We just sort of said, funny enough, hot stuff's not been formally investigated and no one's looked at the impact on effect size for hot stuff bias. But you're making a judgment of your, on your experiences and observations of how you think that, that, that bias is impacting at the time. Um, and then we've got a blog. So we're going to keep a blog going. I've started the first one and I'm hopefully relying on, we're going to rely on the, 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 the A team to, to be filling in and putting blogs in. But we'll also be inviting blogs in from, from people from the outside as well, so external, to keep, that, to keep that running. All things bias and all things bias related. Okay. Um, and I just wanted to link, actually, from, if you go back to one of the pages, I talked about the James Lind Library, and here's where I think I'll bring in Ian, because you'll see where we can and where we could find a link. We, 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 as best we could, we said, OK, there's also some real good information on this bias on the James Lind Library, and we put the definition in that James Lind give, and then when you click on that, you go off, and you've got a really nice definition with a lot a lot more content than what we've been able to put on our catalogue, but that wasn't the point of our catalogue. Our catalogue is a quick one-stop shop, and then you can go off and start reading some more important biases there. Um, so I think on that note, Ian, if it's all right, if you wouldn't mind just giving a few words on the background to, to the James Lind, if that's great. Thank you. Okay, well, first of all, I'm really chuffed to have been invited to come to this launch. It's just great. I mean, for, for someone who, as I have been, trying to point out that you don't have to be a statistician to understand about biases, and biases are actually more fundamental than statistics, it's just very, very good news indeed. So I want to congratulate you on having taken this initiative. Really fantastic. And you can imagine that I'm <clears throat> particularly chuffed that you've seen that the um, James Lind Library is relevant to this enterprise. That's great. Um, I talked to Dave about this paper, and I asked him, what's happened to Joanne Chiavetta? Now, um, I heard, I was very pleased actually to hear that Dave, David had actually looked to see if he could find out where Joanne Chiavetta is. So far, neither of us know. Dave didn't know. Dave Sackett didn't know. So I think that one of the first jobs of the Catalogue of Bias is to do a worldwide search for the current whereabouts of Joanne Chiavetta, because she deserves some credit, actually, for having produced the first catalogue. And by the way, the way it's spelt is actually the European way. It's not the English way. It's the same in French as well. Um, so. It's important. I eventually persuaded Dave um, to write uh, a commentary on this paper. And that involved finding out a little bit about the meeting um, for which he had prepared it. And um, <clears throat> there was a great deal of discussion about case control studies, how valid they were. There were some people who wouldn't give them the time of day other people who realized that they were the only way of going about addressing some questions. Um, and we got the person who convened the meeting, someone called Michael Ibrahim, uh, an epidemiologist, 
um, to write an appendix to Dave's article in that, giving a background to the meeting. I was interested because um, Dave, when he came to Oxford, made um, a made a somewhat um, bad impression on uh, Martin Vesey, who was the professor of public health. Uh, Martin felt that because of this paper, Dave didn't have any time for the sort of work, the cohort studies and the case control studies, which Martin was doing. And Martin, they never really got on, it has to be said, uh, during the five years that he was here. And I thought that you know something might have come out of, of Dave writing about this uh, exercise. Um, and so I got him to write about it. It's a very nice piece that he's written. It doesn't really un, uh, uncover much about uh, that, um, but it's there for people to see. So what I thought I'd do is, uh, let me see whether that, yes, I'll just give you, um, I'm, I'm going to give you a very few examples from the James Lynn Library to illustrate how it might be useful um, uh, to people using the catalogue of um, bias. So it has these three um, silos, if you like, of um, records and articles, um, general articles about what constitute fair tests that you in general need to have a comparison of some sort if you want to make an inference about an, an effect of, of a, an intervention. Then the biases, and you see we don't have 235 or whatever it was, uh, certainly not even 100, I think there are seven there, so I'm going to choose some from there. Got something on the play of chance, and then we've got something which is to remind people that at the end of the day all of this is an attempt to try and make things better for patients and the public in general and um, work which relates to that and so for example the quality of reporting and key papers in the quality of reporting research go into that but before we start to bias um, I felt it was quite important to actually say when you don't need to worry about bias because there are certain treatments that have such slam-bang effects that bias is unlikely to be um, uh, a cause of these effects. Uh, this is a paper that Paul Glasier and, uh, and some of us wrote and it was published in the BMJ. And we've got some examples of um, uh, treatments with dramatic effects and the sort of ways in which that drama shows itself. But I just took one from 1801 uh, which is Astley Cooper um, treating uh, conductive deafness by doing tympanotomy. Um, it sort of hurts to look at this uh, um, spear being stuck down your ear. But basically that's, that was an example of a dramatic um, treatment. People who hadn't heard, had, hadn't been able to hear for some time, suddenly could hear. So you don't need to worry about bias there. You may need to worry about it in different sorts of deafness, but for certain types of deafness um, that was a dramatic effect. The two biases which I've uh, chosen to illustrate are allocation bias and observer bias. Observer bias is sometimes called measurement bias and other sorts of um, terms as well. And this one I thought to start off with uh, it was done in 1809 during the Peninsular War uh, in fact, in um, Portugal, 
where there was a, a base um, hospital. Um, seemed to be quite busy, soldiers often with fevers of one sort and the other. Um, and there were three surgeons there. One of them was Alexander Hamilton, who described himself, actually, as the most beautiful man in existence, which is the name of the biography of this man, who was a bit of a bounder in all sorts of ways. But um, he reports in his MD thesis, in Latin, uh, for the University of uh, Edinburgh, that it had been so arranged that 366 soldiers had, were admitted alternately in such a manner that each of us had one-third of the whole. The sick were indiscriminately received, no selection, were attended as nearly as possible with the same care and accommodated with the same comforts. Neither Mr. Anderson nor I ever once employed the Lancet, bloodletting. He lost two I-4 cases, mortality of 2.5%, whilst out of the other third, uh, the other surgeon used bloodletting, 35 patients died. So a tenfold uh, higher mortality rate uh, using the, what was then the um, uh, very widely used form of um, treatment. Uh, here's another one which is methodologically a bit more interesting in a way. Thomas Graham Balfour was a doctor. He was in charge of a, um, uh, an orphanage, a military orphanage in Chelsea. And um, he went on to become the president of the Royal Statistical Society, so he was, in that sense, a fairly exceptional medical doctor. And th th there was the idea that um, giving um, belladonna to children during a course of a um, scarlet fever epidemic would protect them from getting scarlet fever. So what he did was... he. There were 151 boys of whom I had tolerably satisfactory evidence that they had not had scarlatina. In other words, he wanted to make sure they were eligible for prevention of uh, uh, scarlet fever. I divided them in two sections, taking them alternately from the list, and this is the key statement, to prevent the imputation of selection. In other words, uh, to prevent bias. Um, I, I don't know an earlier um, quotation which puts it quite as clearly as that, what he was trying to do. Um, by the beginning of the 20th century, um, alternation was being used very widely and it had uh, become called different things in different languages. And basically, alternation uh, was the predecessor of random allocation. Random allocation Really, its only advantage in practical terms is that it's easier to conceal what the allocation method is. But that doesn't mean to say that if you use random numbers, the allocation schedule is necessarily concealed. It might be stuck up on the wall so that uh, when people, uh, the next patient eligible comes in, you look at the list on the wall and you decide, actually, no, I don't think I want to put the patient in. They're going to be allocated to that. So you can have, um, because of lack of concealment of a um, random allocation schedule, you can introduce bias. Random allocation does not protect you against bias without concealment of the allocation schedule. Now, reducing observer bias. Well, this was a comparison of so-called <coughs> tractors, metal tractors, 
uh, with placebo um, tr tractors made of wood for treating rheumatism. This is from 1800. Um, this is Gilray's cartoon making fun of this uh, um, very fashionable treatment. Um, these is, this is what they looked like. And as you'll see, the inventor, Perkins, had patented them. And the idea was you put this little bit of metal spike against someone's nose, I think it's, it is there, or some part of them, and you drew out of them some uh, magnetic thing that was causing the problem leading to their symptoms. Well, this man, Haygarth, did a very nice uh, job. He said, right, well, let's make some out of wood to look like metal, and therefore, which will not uh, act in the way claimed for them. And he wrote up this lovely pa pamphlet of the imagination as a cause and a cure of disorders of the body, exemplified by fictitious tractors and epidemical convulsions. And he was unable to find any difference between patients treated with the wooden ones and the metal ones. So that's an example of observer bias, the observers being the patients, of course, um, uh, being controlled by a placebo-controlled trial in 1800. This is an example of a comparison of, of, uh, uh, which involved both um, control of allocation bias and observer bias. It was a comparison of activated and ordinary horse serum for uh, treating diphtheria in 1918. It was done by this rather um, serious-looking person, um, Adolf Bingel, and uh, he worked in this place, which looks a bit like Wormwood Scrubs, I would say, but presumably it was the, the state-of-the-art uh, hospital at the time. And this is how he puts it. Uh, he proceeded cautiously. Um, I began in 1912 to treat alternate adult patients with antitoxin serum and with ordinary serum. That's unactivated serum. Um, exactly in the temporal sequence in which they were admitted to the ward. To make the trial as objective uh, as possible, I haven't relied on my own judgment alone, but have sought the views of assistant physicians of the diphtheria ward without informing them about the nature of the serum under test, namely the ordinary horse serum. Their judgment was thus completely without prejudice. So again, um, uh, I'm keen to see my observations checked independently and most warmly recommend this blind method for the purpose. So it's a nice example of a trial which um, is controlling uh, allocation bias and observer bias. Last thing on um, to do with chance, I know this isn't part of bias, but I thought that for those of you who weren't aware that meta-analysis was used um, a long time ago, and in this particular case, 1928, here are three hospitals in which alternate allocation trials had been used to test serum um, uh, versus no serum. Um, and outlined in red are the um, combined meta-analyzed results from the three hospitals in which the three trials that were done in 1928. The word meta-analysis wasn't introduced until 1976 by, um, uh, by Jean Glass, um, an educational psychologist. Um, 
that's my last slide. Um, it's basically to show um, uh, the people who have been involved in the James Lind Library. And um, in, I haven't named all of the um, more than 100 authors of um, articles. Um, um, Jeff um, Aronson is one of them. Uh, I'm trying to see whether there are any others here. I don't think there are any others, but basically there are a lot of uh, authors of some fantastic articles, including yours, of course. Yes. <laughs> so there we go. I guess we've started. One of the things I'm always a great believer is don't wait until it's a finished product. Make it happen. Get it out there. Get some people who are interested in this and build and build. And then in about five years' time, we'll have an amazing product. Um, I believe we've got a lot to do because if we look at each one of these, we could do a better job. We could probably find better examples. We could find better, some of them studies about the impact and think about the preventive measures. Jeff and I were talking today about stage two, stage three and stage four. Yeah, thinking about the impact of these biases, how did the impact on the papers we see? How do they interact? What's the true impact? How do we talk about this in terms of reducing their impact in researchers? What should we be doing as researchers to prevent that? So we think there's lots to do here. So it's one of these projects where we want to just keep going and going and going. So it's not just building the new biases. It's also coming back and revisiting the ones we've written and thinking, how do we improve that? I'm particularly interested in people who are interested in want to be involved. And so we've got on the contact page a form where you say, I'm really interested in a bias, here's why. I'm going to tell you a bit of background about why I'm interested in that. So if you're really interested, we'd love to hear from you. And I think one of the things when I click on the biases, what I think we're really interested as well is, um, um, one of the key is Ruth and I and Elizabeth, Elizabeth Spencer are trying to get a bit more money because we can afford to take about 10 people away at the moment and at some point we may grow that number. But I think there's a bit in the biases as we go down the background is, um, is here. We want to really grow in, in this section. There's a, there's a bit here, there's another one with the James Lynn Library that's below there which we haven't filled in. It's got teaching resources. And we want to put some, with each bias, an ability to pull off the couple of slides that can make it when you're teaching really well. And I think that'll be a huge benefit when we do that. And so some of the mission is when you've wrote a bias, it's not just to say, oh, I've gone to my next one. It's to think, right, okay, what would, what, what would we do to teach this? How would I help a teacher around there in the world? So that's the global aspect of everything. And, and that's where it fits with not just teachers in postgraduate or health professionals, I think this is everybody, this, the school children in particular. So I think that's a mission, is, to, is for people to get involved but keep coming back to their bias and thinking I'm going to slightly improve it. So I'm going to finish at that and thanks to David, thanks to Ian, but thanks to everybody to come in, but particularly there are a number of people in this room who we dragged to Bristol. I can tell you they like the beer at night and the meal and we had them hammered for about 14 hours of writing and at the time I'm not quite sure they thought this was a good idea but I think now 
when you see the finished product, I think it's been a really fantastic journey and we're hoping to continue it. So on that basis, thank you very much to everybody who's come and those who've helped it and made it participated in developing the catalogue. Thank you very much.